Welcome to Ecoactivist Journeys. Um, today I'm here with Professor Mads Fischer-Moller, who works on food policy at Scotland's Royal College and is leader at the food, uh, Future Food System and Challenge Centre. And yeah, before coming to Scotland, Mads worked as a civil servant in Denmark and for the Nordic Intergovernmental Corporation on Food Policy. Um, I know Mads through one of my master's courses at the University of Edinburgh called Participation in Policy and Planning. And yeah, as an integral part of the course, um, my class and I had to conduct a research project on Scotland's Good Food Nation Bill. Um, SRUC and Norwich Scotland were actually um, the clients of our research project and we got to present our findings uh, and recommendations to the Scottish Government on the 30th of March, which was very exciting and a great opportunity. Um, and yeah, man, I will talk a little bit more about good, the Good Food Nation Bill um, and food systems in Scotland more specifically um, in our discussion today as well. But um, to start, um, I thought it would be really good if we dive into the topic of food systems more generally and well, what is the problem? Um, so, Mads Pusse, thank you so much for being here today. And um, so what, what do you think? What, do, what, what would you identify as, as the most critical problem within our current global food system? Yeah, thank you so much for having me and thank you for the lovely presentation you did uh, at, at Holyrood, the Scottish Parliament uh, last week. It, it was it was absolutely fabulous and and we found some really stark contrasts between what policies politicians think about the food system and what is actually happening on the ground so if we are identifying the the biggest challenge on the global food system well right now it would be quite easy to say soaring food prices because we do see a lot of people going to bed hungry every single day even in countries like the UK, we just see so that a million adults each day go to bed without having a meal in the United Kingdom. And that's in a rich country like ours. If we go to, for instance, Yemen, a country hit by famine due to war. Well, the World Food Program just last month said due to the crisis in prices, they have to take food from the hungry to give to the starving. So that's the level of food poverty. So after maybe 15 years of, of, of starvation in the world declining, we are seeing starvation increasing, food insecurity increasing all over the world. So on the short term, I would say, well, we the, the system just isn't delivering the key purpose of the system, which is to feed the world. But we have to look a little bit further down. It's not just about the prices. It's about a completely, re, we need a reorientation of the food system that also delivers on planetary goals. Because I think on the medium to long term, we need the, the biggest challenge of the food system is to make sure that it's a net carbon sink, not a net carbon emitter. Food is causing a third of all greenhouse gas emissions. It's causing around 75% of all biodiversity loss. And we know that we can change the system and deliver on all of our objectives at once. So the good news is we do know what we need to do and we can put in place solutions that both make food more accessible, makes food more healthy, and delivers on, on climate and biodiversity uh, uh, mitigation. So I would say short term, prices, hunger, but in the medium to long term, we need to move towards a much, much greener way of farming that is also more just. 
Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting to sort of look at all the things that are happening in the world, but then also become aware, you know, what a critical aspect food is playing and will continue to play, especially if we go further into like different crises of like climate change and and war. And that is just like a continual problem that we will face um, and are facing. So I think it's really important to to remember that. And I think sometimes it's easy to take things like food or even water very for granted, especially, I mean, for water specifically, I suppose, especially here in water rich countries, um, but in other countries around the world is really, um, yeah, it's very critical and um, can't survive without water, you know? So I yeah. think, um, yeah. I think that on, on that note, Leah, I think the tone's also changing a little bit because we have been used to see in, at least in our part of the world, and increasingly with with falling levels of, of hunger, food has become more and more of a commodity, just something we trade like everything else. But food is, is substantially different from everything else because we do need food for survival. It's one of the very few things we actually need. And we have been relying on the global market just to deliver that for us. So food politics have never really been super interesting. I know I've been working in the field for 15 years, so it's harsh to say, but we've just taken for granted, well, it'll sort itself out. Mm -hmm. And suddenly we can see that food is, is kind of like confronted with these kind of like enormous challenges in the current food system that a lot of the food system stakeholders just aren't used to. So at the moment, it's Ukraine suddenly abrupt uh, disruptions in the supply chain that means that farmers don't have fertilizers to fertilize the fields, that uh, livestock farmers don't have money to feed their cattle in our part of the world. Well, those kind of situations have been experienced in Africa, in uh, Southeast Asia for a number of years, but we've just kind of like lulled ourselves into this uh, impression that that's that's a thing of the past, these scarcities, but it's actually, we are an interdependent system and with, with huge disruptions like the war in Ukraine, suddenly everyone feels that. But then at the same time, we are just getting to understand, or at least the food system key stakeholders are just getting to understand that they actually need to change in order to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm. So what, the, what we thought was the good thing to do 15 years ago is now the wrong thing to do. It's similar to coal. We thought coal was good to do maybe in the 70s and the 80s. Also in, in your home country of, of Germany, there's been a lot of coal mining. Suddenly coal was not the good thing to keep the, the, the society moving forward, but actually a bad thing holding society back. And that kind of like mental shift is just only now triggering through the food systems. That's also one of the reasons why food is really fascinating to work in, but also can be very, very frustrating because some of these harsh realities of what the food system causes of pain in the world have just not really been anything key stakeholders have been talking about. Yeah. We've just thought, well, we just produce food and, and, and the supply chains are working. If we just get a little bit better every single day, that's completely fine. But what we see now is just incremental change towards the same goal that we've had in the past 10, 15, 20 years isn't enough anymore. So they fundamentally have to face farmers, food industries, some challenges that they just aren't used to facing. So it, it is very hard for them, but they are well resourced, so they can actually uh, manage to solve this, I would claim. Yeah, that leads me quite nicely into my next question I wanted to ask you. Um, you know, agriculture and, and food is such 
um, important industries, but also very high emitting industries. So obviously very important for climate change and for our future that we address um, food system change. But then why do you think has it been missing in international discussions so much? Well, some of that comes from how Kyoto Protocol is constructed, that everything is about what we produce and food is global. So production of food and consumption of food isn't necessarily directly linked. So when we talk about food, we often talk about consumption. But when we uh, look at how uh, Kyoto Protocols and all the international frameworks around climate change is constructed, it's always about production and emission from our industries. So the way we eat here in the UK does cause a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, but it causes them in other parts of the world, which is one of the reasons why we are feeling the pressure to change in our food system as much. But also food has been quite good at at kind of like ducking and, and hiding itself away and say, well, the world needs to eat. So we, of course, can't demand from the food sector to change our ways because we still need to produce food. So many of the early, when, when food system stakeholders, what I experienced when I worked in the Nordic region, but also as a diplomat, what I saw was that when we saw these uh, international projections of what should we do about climate change, food always assumed that they could just keep going the way they've done always, and then everyone else needs to change around them. And food would also always say, well, but the world wants meat. So we have to deliver meat. So a lot of the food industry have, have, have tried to say, because food is necessary to uphold life, food will just keep going as usual, as normal. And how have they been able to do that? It's, it's quite tricky, but I think people are less emotionally connected to what kind of electricity flows from your socket than what you put on the plate, which means it's less hard for policymakers to say we change the grid the composition of the electricity grid than it is for policymakers to say we change the composition of your plate so politically it's been safer to say we won't interfere too much with food we hope that food can solve itself out with incremental changes so that we get a little bit more efficient in farming every single day and then we make the transformative changes in other industries going from uh, diesel cars to electric cars going from uh, coal-fired power plants to wind turbines and then let food be food. We just now know that's not enough and that is why certainly the onus is on food. But still, the, the name food isn't mentioned in, uh, in the national determined contributions to the uh, uh, climate change protocol. When we're looking into the what the nations are delivering when it comes to what are in their plans to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Zero of the world's countries have anything on food waste. Zero of the world's countries have targets on dietary change. Even though we know that if we reduced food waste by a third or half, it would be equal to kind of like cutting China's greenhouse gas emissions in half, which is enormous. But policymakers are still reluctant to demand change that can actually be felt by uh, their voters. So that's also a part of it. Mm -hmm. Luckily, this seems to be changing.
Yeah, I was just about to ask, is this, is this, do you think it's sort of changing the fact that it's coming, um, it's higher on the agenda and people are realizing it's a discussion point that we need to have and change that sort of is inevitable to happen. And so we better start talking about it and start seeing what can be done. Yeah, I think that the era where food could hide, as I, as I told, uh, is ending. Food system actors are starting to face the music and dance. They've They've been slow to come to the party, but now they're there. Uh, what's hard for them now is just to really understand that they need that kind of like transformational change because for 50 years they've been very successful in incremental change. But it, the evidence is becoming so clear that they can't hide from it. But also we can see that consumers are starting to put a pressure on food system actors to deliver differently. At least in the West, a lot of consumers are choosing to change diets. When I worked as a as an advisor on nutritional policy for the Danish government 10 years ago, there were no signs anywhere in the world that any country would be able to reach peak meat. Now we're seeing that almost all countries in the northern in Northern Europe have reached peak meat and are starting to consume less meat. We've just seen this completely linear uh, causality between wealth increase and meat increase. And that's breaking. So consumers are starting to pick up that mantle and say, we want a different world. That sends a very strong market signal that's, that tells the sla our slaughterhouses, that tells our dairy farmers, that tells our big, uh, big dairy industry, they need to deliver different products. We expect more from you. So the pressure is actually, especially in this realm, I think the pressure is building from the consumer up. And I was once fortunate enough to work for the uh, a, a brilliant guy called Dag Finn Højbrotten, who was, uh, used to be uh, the Minister of Health in Norway. He wasn't well rehearsed in food policy, but I advised him on food policy when he led the Nordic collaboration. And he came to me once when we did an event at the climate conference and he came to me and said, Mess, am I wrong in saying that in food, policy seems to be behind both consumers and business? And I was like, yeah, no, you're actually right. What we're trying with food policies often just not stand in the way of the good thing. And he was just so, so uh, perplexed because he was used as a policymaker to lead progress in food policy isn't leading progress policy is actually often hindering progress and sometimes the best we can do is just to at least don't stand in the way of it but yeah. i think we see change happening driven first of all by consumers that trickles to the retailers big finance that will trickle to the farmers and once everyone in the system understands change is needed then food policy can come and lay the tracks, build the partnerships that allows us to accelerate change. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting to sort of see how much the food market has changed in the in the last years in terms of, um, I guess, plant-based alternatives and needs. And yeah, the vegan product range uh, has like exploded <laughs> for sure, which, um, yeah, I think just even a, a few years ago wasn't as visible. And now you, it's really visible in the supermarkets when you, you go. Um, whereas before, I think it was a lot more niche and hidden to try and find maybe 
some form of um, yeah non-dairy alternative or meat alternative for example and now um, they're definitely there so I think it's, it's it's sort of exciting to see how that has changed as well and I think also how it has changed the fact that you know plant milk is not necessarily just for vegans like people will go and and have like will come and be like okay well I'll try this oat milk because you know why not and because I don't I want to have less milk whereas I think before it was seen a little bit well only someone who'd be a strict vegan would have a plant milk let's say yeah and and the cool thing is that now when when there is this kind of consensus building from the consumer towards the retailers the food industry hopefully reaching the farmers as well and the political realm we can see now we can actually kind of like draw the pathways forward that allows us to go from that in just and uh, nature disrupting food system to the nature friendly and more uh, just uh, and healthy food system and it is quite clear as the danish minister of food i was in a conference uh, I, I i overheard him uh, uh, talking about the need for transitioning of the danish food system and he said it's it's pretty clear we need to produce way more plant proteins and swap some of the animal proteins for plant proteins. That's number one. We need to make sure that whatever we do with the plants is super tasty. It's not good enough that the vegan cheese had the wrong consistency. We need to make sure that the vegan equivalent is on par with the livestock-based equivalent. And then we need to keep being more and more efficient in whatever livestock industry will remain. And I think that template can pretty much be used everywhere and it would make much more food from less uh, area, which would lower costs of food for everyone. And it would make it fun for us as consumers because we would have more variety of great stuff to choose from because we have all this innovation in plants that we haven't seen for enough of in the past 50 years apart from maybe the past five years. And we would still have some livestock, but it would be much more efficient and probably some less livestock than today. So that's the plan. And now it, even the policymakers dare speak that. When I worked in government 10 years ago, I couldn't get the minister to say that we needed more plants and less animals. But but it's part of the conversation now, and that's important. Yeah. No, I think there's definitely still a lot of change that needs to happen, but it, at least it's good to see that slowly there is some some shift. And also to, yeah, to realize, I guess, what, what, what can can we change the system? I think that, that that's um, a question I want to ask you. You know, is it is it possible to really change food systems and food cultures that people have had? Because, like you said, you know, food is so integral to, I guess, our way of life, our culture, um, and forms an important aspect of, I guess, family and socializing, and all of that. So. Yeah, what do you think? Um, yeah. Maybe, yeah. It, it is possible. It's hard. And mm -hmm. you can say not any single one person can change this. It's not as though we have a minister of energy and that minister gets through parliament a bill that allows us, kind of like Angela Merkel, she was able to close down all of the nuclear power in Germany. It's possible for one person with a strong mind and a lot of power to do that kind of transformation. When you're transforming food, you need to think very, very differently. It's about winning hearts and minds. It's not about 
kind of like just pushing your idea through but it can be done and it can you can also have policy help in that kind of like food culture transformation a lot of nations around the world don't really see that as an option they see whatever consumers are buying as pretty much that is our food culture it cannot be changed but and and that's specifically goes for a place like the United Kingdom and Scotland where where we are at at the moment, where policymakers just think well the Scottish food culture is horrible so given that what can we then do around that to at least uh, make our our food system less emitting but what I learned from the in, in from working in Denmark was that food culture can change and policy can play a huge role but you need a unifying vision. We need, first of all, to acknowledge that status quo is tenable. We need kind of like either an external shock, linking back to Angela Merkel, we had the Fukushima nuclear disaster, and that was an external shock that says, okay, we, we feel the pressure on us to do something else. I'm not saying she was wrong or right, just as an example. What's the external shock to the food system? Well, if all the stakeholders in a food system, food systems are often kind of like policy and discussion around food is often working on a very national basis. So here in Scotland, all the key stakeholders keep saying everything is fine. We are a good food nation. We don't need to change. So if you don't feel a need to change, mm -hmm. then nothing will change. But what I saw in Denmark was we had been doing fine, exporting a lot of uh, pig and milk, for, for generations, that's been kind of like a backbone of how Denmark become, became a wealthy nation uh, through the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Suddenly someone came, some from the kind of gastronomic environment say, well, shouldn't we strive for more? We're just producing pigs that are then being turned into Parma ham down in Italy and then sold back to Denmark with a premium. Couldn't we go and make the Parma ham ourselves? We're producing apples, but we are not making it into cider we're just selling dirt cheap apples and we're buying apple cider from france can't we do more ourselves so they they challenged someone challenged key stakeholders and say we can do better we have good ingredients but we are not working with them in order to actually increase the value of these ingredients so we can strive to for more more value added so that was the challenge to the food industry the challenge was also why are we only eating livestock why are we almost only producing and eating pig dairy meat that's the danish food culture can't we strive for something better mm -hmm. so they a group of chefs ha had this radical idea that was more about going more being more creative be more uh, exploring of what can we actually produce here apart from these kind of like few staple foods that turned into a whole gastronomic movement the new nordic food movement they called it and that completely changed what we could see could be the future of a food system. And it, it showed an alternative food culture that was both pleasing, it was something people could aspire to, it was close to what we were used to, but it was also a detour from it. So it showed that there is another version of Danish food available that's less reliant on just uh, pig and and dairy, more curious, more adventurous, more fun. And we had great restaurants to show what that could look like. Mm -hmm. But that 
doesn't trickle down from the restaurants if we don't put in place other options as well. But what happened was then the restaurants inspired the public canteens, it inspired cookbooks, it inspired the emergence of um, completely new public institutions, like we have an institution called the food culture that only works on transferring what's happening kind of like on the upper tiers of Danish society and bring that out to more everyday people. So when when the restaurant started having more fish on the menu because we're good at making fish in Denmark, then this food culture looked into what are actually the chances in the Danish supply chain for fish? Why aren't people poor people in Denmark able to buy a fish? Trying to solve that. So you have to have a have some vision that a lot of stakeholders can lash onto and say, well, we can see ourselves in this. The dairy companies could see, well, if we can make more money, we are okay with this. Let's try to have this alternative vision that's more cool and fun. But that also then you need a lot of initiative to trickle that down and democratize it. But what we've ended up with after 15 years or 20 years uh, of this uh, new Nordic food movement is that now uh, there's a lot more innovation in the Danish food system than what we were used to. We see better diets. We see now that dietary guidance can go out and say, we want to a tenfold increase in consumption of pulses. That would never have been anything we could have suggested 10 years ago because Danes weren't ready, but now they are. So you can change a food culture, but you need some new tools in the policy toolbox. You need to work together across supply chains and you need a unifying vision from where we want to go. Mm, yeah, I think it's interesting because it, it's almost that like, combination of bottom up and top down it's you can't only have people working at the bottom to try and push things but you also can't just have a i don't know put a regulation in place and be like okay yeah. solved because it needs to sort of work to change that you're absolutely um, right we need a, a kind of like a top-down vision or hopefully a vision that can be agreed to by many but give some direction you can't just say be better it needs to be an inspiring cool fun vision as well to lean into and we need to then let a thousand flowers flourish from underneath to support that vision. And then it's easier when we also have some, kind of like an, an external shock, like food in the climate crisis or the war in Ukraine, that makes it more palatable for food system stakeholders to understand, okay, we actually need to change because status quo isn't tenable. Mm. Yeah, it's, re it's really interesting to hear about that. Those sort of changes in how, I guess, they ways can be put into place to really change how a country or, or society views food and eats what kind of foods it eats so what what do you think can can the rest of the world learn from those food system changes in the nordic countries well often often what i i used to work with this uh, and and what was most persuading because a lot of countries see well the nordics they are exceptional so often show your vulnerabilities first say well we aren't great but what we are trying to we can see that what we're trying to do is working and just share good stories share good examples where working together and where policy can actually start changing stuff because a lot of people working in food policy are discouraged they are demoralized because we've been trying to change how people eat for 25 years, 35 years, and it hasn't happened. I'm sure we all know our national 
dietary advice. And we also all know that we are missing the targets. So, so just go out there and share, well, actually this intervention have worked. We have a success story that just build that kind of energy and trust in the people who've been working in this field for a long, long time and have hardly ever seen any impact from their work because it's just we're fighting up against a system that's broken. And we are also in this broken system producing, the global food system producing too much sugar, too much uh, fat, and we have a food industry that takes these kind of like sugar, fat, meat, salt, things that we shouldn't have as much of, but it's just very, very, very cheap. And it's very easy for our reptile brain to just have that. We can see all our fast food matches with all the things that uh, our, our old, old, old ancestors needed from the food system. Think 2000 years back, what you wanted was fat and was calories and was uh, some basic, some salt and some protein. That's what the fast food is giving us. But that life of 2000 years ago is just not the life of a, of, of the everyday working man and woman in, a, in the current society. But our brains haven't adapted and let us understand that we need something different now. So our brain still feeds us as though we were 2000 years ago. And that's easy to exploit by the food industry. So we're fighting up against that kind of like that almost Neanderthal brain of ours. And, mm. and it's very hard for nutritionists to then put in place tiny, tiny campaigns to fight against the, the, how humans are working. But it can be done. So I think the best lesson to, 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 to share from the Nordics is mm. kind of like you can change these curves. We can reach peak meat and we have policy interventions that we can replicate. And that's luckily it's already being done. A lot of places around the world are taking some inspiration and are finding out themselves. So I, when I worked for the Nordic government, I, I did tour around the world sharing some of these ideas. And I can see some of, some of that is being uh, kind of like uh, implemented in Canada. Some of that is implemented in Costa Rica. Some of that is being implemented in India. So it, it, it's, a, it's a lot of, of people working in the sector has just been hungry for some success stories. So just sharing your success stories is important. Yeah, I think it's 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 really interesting to see sort of how that like systemic change needs to happen in terms of like working also with nutritionists or with like the healthcare sector because obviously there's like you said I think there's there's been so much that's still in our food cravings that is from obviously past times and um, and it's being exploited by a fast food industry um, but at the same time there's obviously such a big health crisis with regards to the food that we consume and obesity and things like that so i think that's also really eye-opening to see like well what role can like the health sector play in trying to push for that which i think they already often are but like you said it's such a big monster to go against and i think sometimes it can seem really hard because then um yeah, it's if it's not like supported, I guess, at like a top level to say, well, we should look at like maybe promoting less fast food or yeah. I guess changing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and the good thing is, is this is the conversation around these issues are starting to change almost everywhere in the world. Whereas 10 years ago, 
you would probably have a child obesity action plan and that would be your nutritional policy. Now, kind of like the fast food, fast food epidemic is inhabited in a broader vision for a national food strategy for England, for example. So that kind of like systemic approach is starting to be put in place, but it is very hard for, for governments to work that much across sectors that food needs you to do. It's much, much easier to just think food that's mostly about farming and then making sure that we don't have any kind of like foodborne diseases like salmonella in your foods. And that's the realm of the public sphere. And then everything else, uh, we just rely on the market. But with the externalities we see from the food system, climate change and uh, increasing health cost uh, from ill, uh, from bad food habits, we, we just can't leave it with that anymore. We need to demand more. And we're only uh, only just waking up to that fact and starting to to do the, the policy tweaks necessary. So there, there's a lot more to, to do, but there's a lot in the pipeline. And so it's, it's a very interesting field to follow in the, in the next two to five years, I'd say. Yeah, uh, I'm actually intrigued because you mentioned, you know, making use of like more, like I guess, different policy, like different t policy tools in the toolbox. Do you have an example of what you would mean by that, for example? Yeah. So in food and farming, the, the, the most notable policy tool that is being used and is most expensive is agricultural subsidies. Mm -hmm. And so we can, we always have done subsidies and it hasn't been very targeted in many places in the world. We just kind of like subsidize production to make sure that we have cheap foods. That's been kind of like a staple part of food policy. And then we've had these policies to make sure that the food chain is secure and safe and you don't get any food ball diseases. And then on top of that, you might have had some public campaigns and stuff. The cool new innovative policies they are usually the policies and the impactful policies are the policies where you work in partnership and where where you don't necessarily put in place a whole lot of new regulations, but where what you do is government identifies a couple of supply chains that should be working and could be working, but aren't working and see how can we make this work. One of my favorite examples is looking into whole grains on the past maybe 15 years, we've come to understand a whole lot more about the gut microbiome and the fact that whole grain is super, super important for our bodies to work properly. Uh, but we have seen a decline globally and in most cultures, a huge decline in consumption of whole grains. What can we do about this? It's not as though it would be hard for the millers to necessarily uh, reintroduce the whole grain. We've just kind of like sneaked it out uh, because consumers just wanted white bread and that's that's lovely and I know when I'm serving bread to my kids well they prefer the white bread but if they don't have the right bread they'll go for the whole wholemeal loaf and that's fine what can we do here it's about changing a whole industry and then you connect it in Denmark uh, 15 years ago they established a partnership led by a government with some government funding but not a lot kind of like 200,000 euros a year. And that partnership said, okay, all of these stakeholders who have kind of like accidentally come to produce the wrong stuff, can we please tweak whatever we're doing 
to actually produce more of the right stuff. So can we reintroduce whole meal in our morning cereals? Can we reintroduce whole meal in the bread offering? Can we reintroduce whole meal breads in public canteens? And that kind of partnership approach where you're respectful and understand that these businesses need to make money, but they can make money from the products that are also better for national health. It has been super successful. So after declining of, of whole meal consumption and uh, uh, whole grain consumption in Denmark for, for 50 years, now in the past 15 years, we've seen whole meal consumption, whole grain consumption doubling. Now we are above the, the diet to recommendate, the, 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 uh, what we recommend as necessary to have a, a good diet. We are kind of like in Denmark eats eight times more whole grain than people in Scotland, even though we could eat the same because we can't grow the same. That kind of targeted, creative, super cheap partnership intervention, we can do that in a whole lot of areas. We can do that in plant proteins supporting beans, but we need to agree on the goals. If, if the National Farmers Union will see a bean partnership as, well, that's a kind of like raging war against livestock. Well, then, then, then we aren't, then we aren't coming anywhere. So we need an overarching vision for the direction of travel, and then we can put in place all these cool little partnerships that yeah. uh, that helps capitalism deliver the outcomes we want, rather than the outcomes uh, for our Neanderthal brain that's killing us and the planet. Mm -hmm. I can't help but comment uh, on 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 the bread story because <laughs> I feel like I could go on a little rent coming from Germany, obviously with the bread that um, is here in the UK compared to the bread from Germany. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I feel like it 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 just sort of does become sort of a cultural thing in some way as well, where you know, okay, well. The countries in the world that have better like bread and then that's almost accepted oh this is the type of bread we have and then the other bread is i don't know let's yep. say german or whatever from another part of the country and i think it's interesting because obviously i feel like you know you just have the right ingredients and you can you can make this bread like anywhere i suppose but it's interesting to sort of see how that i guess hasn't just infiltrated into society in terms of like what bread is eaten uh, and accepted and yeah. seen as standard. So, yeah. and if we wanted to see that kind of like brown bread revolution, for instance, here in Scotland, well, we would need to also accept, leaning back to the earlier conversation we had, that a lot of people in Scotland and the UK go to bed hungry. So we need to, and at the moment, the brown bread is just in the shops as the expensive, cool alternative for rich kids and fancy professors. And and that's obviously what what we opt for because we know that's better for us. But it's not necessarily the the, the available option for a lot of people who are just need to have the cheapest uh, cheapest bread. But you can, if with the right kind of interventions and working in partnership with industry, you can actually make the right product as cheap. Yeah. But it is about kind of like changing. It's fine that someone like you and me demand this so that makes it interesting for businesses to work to at least put this on the shelves but we also need to make it work with industry to, to democratize the right choices and we need to have this conversation around the food culture that makes it appealing for more and more people to try to take the right choice in the supermarket yeah. especially if it is as cheap but we often hear it's too cheap to eat healthily 
but chickpeas are still cheaper than meat. Carrots are still cheaper than candy. So, yeah. But you also need a lot more. I'm not saying that people should just eat chickpeas and carrots and then they we would deal with food poverty, but we need to admit that there are other as aspects also. Why is it that some of this food is um, so expensive, you know? And I think there's often a thing that says, oh, vegan food is so much more expensive. And yes, I guess some of the like substitute are made more expensive because they know like there's a demand for it and people who probably be able to afford it will buy it that. But I think like ultimately like so much more like vegetables and things are so actually so much, um, yeah, are actually so much cheaper to buy overall. Um, and some of the, yeah, some of the, I guess, plant-based food are actually really cheap in terms of like eating healthily if you yep. don't look for like additional I guess like substitute elements so I think it's it's interesting and I do think we have to work with sort of like subsidies and looking at how to change the system and how to actually support um, like healthy food to make it yep. cheaper and unhealthy food to make it less um, yep. desirable um, and and yeah maybe even more expensive like I think it was it's really interesting sometimes when 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 I lived in in Cape Town, South Africa, and there was the water crisis, suddenly water was more expensive than Coke. And I was like, this makes no sense to me because obviously Coke needs so much water to make as well. So I just find it really interesting because clearly there's something yep. at play in terms of actually making some yep. of the things cheaper that shouldn't be cheap. But there's also, to, I, it, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Cesar uh, Reveredo in, at Scotland Rural College, he just published a study the, uh, last year looking into kind of like uh, taxing uh, sugary beverages would that work and and kind of like different levels of taxation you could put in place and even kind of like the highest taxation that you could imagine would still not make coke as expensive or uh, would still not be uh, kind of like counterbalancing when the supermarkets put coke on sale and we know that when supermarkets put coke on sale it just gives more customers to the supermarket so sometimes we also have to understand that even with even if we did dare to use that mechanism of changing prices and tweaking the playing field mm -hmm. there are still a lot of market forces that would work against it coke is still so extremely cheap to produce and so extremely valuable because people get addicted to it. So it it will still have a market share, even if we put some some tax on it. Uh, the the alternative would of course be if we put in place a tax that was so so high as, for instance, our tobacco taxes, that might change things, but then we would need to put in place all over the world. So what I do think is a more viable option is to increase diversity within each uh, product category and expand the the market share for the things we want to see more of so instead of for instance subsidizing plant-based alternatives to meat and putting a tax on meat i think it might be more efficient to stimulate innovation in plant-based proteins help that market grow because we can see that once a market is big then prices are usually falling we see that, for instance, in Denmark with organics and in Germany as well at the moment. Organics used to be kind of like a premium product where you paid maybe a, a half a price more, 50% more for, for an inferior product. But because organics have grown and grown and grown, now you can go and have organics, but for maybe only 
10-15% more and the products are pretty similar to the non-organic version. So when a, a, a sub-market grows, prices are falling. We can see that with plant-based proteins at the moment. We start seeing that prices are actually falling on these alternatives, especially with plant-based drinks right now. It used to be so that plant-based drinks, milk alternatives, were actually more expensive than milk. But now we see, well, Oatly is still more expensive, but then the supermarkets are starting to have their own Mm-hmm. own brand labels and they might be cheaper than milk which is logical because they they use kind of like one deciliter of oats and then mix it yeah. with water and they put it on a carton that wears proper milk dairy milk it takes maybe i think it's around 100 liters of water to produce one liter of milk yeah. plus you have to have it through a cow and you have to have whole that whole system up and running Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the, the plant-based milks, they haven't had that. They don't have that system. So all the alternatives will be more expensive because they haven't had a hundred years of investment into it. It's not there's not a lot of logins. But once we nurture the, the 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 niche products and the alternatives, then they will fundamentally become cheaper. So I do think that that plant pro plant-based uh, protein uh, alternatives and horticulture products will be cheaper in the medium to long term just through that kind of common understanding that it is the way we need to go and there will still be hugely expensive plant-based alternatives but there will also be dirt cheap ones that everyone can access Hmm. yeah i wanted to um one more note on subsidies before we move on i wanted to ask because i think it's really interesting to see with sort of shifts in discussions around for example um, agriculture changes such as, um, yeah, regenerative agriculture, let's say. I heard there's obviously there's a lot, sometimes a bit of a problem in terms of like where agricultural subsidies flow and that can sort of almost inhibit progress being made yeah. within how farming is done because farmers know they can get a certain amount of money. They just have to plant these crops and regardless of, let's say, if there's a disaster or something that will be accounted for you know and, and, and insured so there's yeah i don't know what 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 do you yeah how can how can that how can that how can that be changed i suppose yeah well it is hard to change agricultural subsidies and that's i'm sure listeners to this conversation will know that that politically it's super tricky because a lot of farmers have a lot of of political connections and you don't want to to kind of like alienate farmers so you don't want to tinkle too much with uh, far, with farm subsidies usually and every time policymakers are threatening to do this on a EU level we see mm-hmm. tractors in the streets of Brussels so farmers are good at mobilizing so so politically it's difficult um, and as I said earlier I'm not sure that necessarily tweaking subsidies a little bit is actually the the main path forward towards more sustainable food system it's kind of like it's part of the it's part of of our legacy and the history and it's another piece of the political framework that needs to be overcome i don't think substance will drive change i think it will the best we can hope for substance at the moment is just to not stand too much in the way of change where i like substance being used is demonstrating new stuff so the EU substance can be used for instance for demonstra- uh, crop demonstrations supply chain demonstration test a lot of stuff and have some public money to help you test mm-hmm. these things 
that's a good way of using subsidies. <clears throat> we can also see that farm subsidies, kind of like the traditional, you do get some money for having a farm. Well, it's it's not super logical, and and uh, in the IPCC report uh, recently, it's now being kind of like labeled as as similar to like fossil fuel subsidies as a subsidies that is supporting a non-sustainable system. So it's good to have these conversations starting. What we see in a country like Denmark, where farmers are generally pretty profitable and where subsidies are make, maybe only making up two to three percent of a farm's income, farmers have to listen more to what's happening in the market. Whereas in a country like Scotland, where some farmers are having maybe a third to half the income from subsidies, yeah. then farmers don't have to listen to the market. Mm -hmm. They have to listen to the subsidies and the subsidies are being put in place to make farmers happy. So it's, so subsidies are usually creating this reinforcing system yeah. that looks backwards rather than forward. Whereas in Denmark or in Germany or in many other kind of more industrialized uh, agriculture nations, farmers will need to look forward towards the market to figure out how can I make a revenue for the future. The most extreme example might be in New Zealand, where they complete their abolished subsidies in the 90s, I think. They don't have any farm subsidies. They do have a farming policy, but it's more about helping farmers adapt to a changing market. And we can see the, wow. New, Zealand, the New Zealand government at the moment. Well, what they want to make sure is that New Zealand, who is mostly producing sheep and dairy, livestock-based farm system, they want to find a market for new, these New Zealand-based products in the future. Where is that market? It is to be the greenest alternative, the least carbon-emitting alternative for livestock products globally. So that if a conscious consumer in China, in South Africa, in Scotland wants a green or at least as green as can be piece of lamb, they will opt for the New Zealand piece of lamb. So if you don't have subsidies, you have to listen more to the consumers. And since I said earlier that consumers seem to be leading here, I think subsidies are more standing in the way. And the fewer subsidies we can have, the more farmers will have to listen to the market and the faster transition will happen. Yeah, no, that's that's so interesting. Thank you um, for explaining that a little bit more, because I do think, yeah, I think there's sometimes the wrong perception about what subsidies can or can't do. Um, so it's it's interesting to look at like what kind of changes can be created, because obviously just scrapping them, especially once they're in place, is kind of politically probably, I don't know, if not if impossible, but quite difficult. So yeah, what, what sort of can be done alternatively, I guess, to support innovation, especially in other factors, and then, I guess, create a greater playing field within the market itself, again, that enables innovation. Yeah, um, we promised we'd talk a little bit about Scotland and the Good Food Nation Bill. So I thought we'd, in the last few minutes, we'd talk a little bit more about that. Um, and, um, yeah, I don't know if you want to give a little bit of a, quick summary or quick insight into what you think with regards to you know what is a critical problem that you see within the Scottish food system and why something like yeah let's say as the Good Food Nation bill um, was a problem with the fact that it's I guess very vague um, but it aims to achieve a very broad amount of um, yeah of guidelines and things such as healthy yeah. sustainable and affordable food. 
Yeah, so the Scottish food system has a couple of, of challenges that, that makes it stand out from the rest of Europe. Basically, Scotland has the worst diets in Europe. Uh, we have the highest obesity rates uh, and, and generally the lowest intake of whole grains and fruit and veg. Very poor diets. Scotland also have a, a food industry that is very uh, heavy biased towards meat and dairy production. So we do have uh, high uh, emissions from the food sector. Scotland has uh, three times higher emissions uh, from food production than neighboring England. So those are kind of like the key challenges in the Scottish food system. Unhealthy diets, high greenhouse gas emissions, and quite an unequal society that also triggers, uh, translates into uh, huge inequalities in diets. What the Good Food Nation bill set out to do seven years ago was to start addressing some of these core issues. The bill we just discussed uh, yourself and, and me in, in Parliament with some of the parliamentarians last week is nowhere near delivering what I would like it to see. It's a framework bill that basically tells others to do food plans. And in the spirit of partnerships that I've been talking about uh, during our conversation today, that's good. It is good to have to, to put the onus on all stakeholders to think about the sustainability of their business and start to figure out how can we be the best we can to promote Scotland as a good food nation. Put owners on local authorities who usually didn't work on foods to suddenly think more about their food, be more strategic about it, and use, for instance, the public procurement as a vehicle to, to inspire us towards a good food nation. The main problem, my main problem with the bill is that there is no definition about what that good food nation should be. The minister, when she introduced the bill in parliament, said, Oh, these past seven years we've been working on this bill, and over these seven years, We've gone from Scott from wanting to be a good food nation to becoming a good food nation. And when we're looking at the figures, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture is not lower and obesity rates are higher, food inequalities are higher. So we are actually further away from becoming a good yeah. food nation, but policymakers want to say the positive thing around food. So in Scotland, there isn't that kind of like unifying vision, as I talked about with Denmark earlier, where you had this, this goal, this vision, we can strive for something better and then have the framework in play to make all a thousand flowers flourish. If you don't have that overarching vision, then where should all the flowers flourish towards? Then they'll actually just keep doing what they're doing because they don't know what to reach for. So that's a key piece that's lacking. So there are kind of like, if we had the vision, the infrastructure in the Good Food Nation bill would be fine. But as it is, it's kind of like a house where you where you completely forgot that you needed the roof and you still expect that house to fulfill all your all your needs. It is a house without a roof. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that was really an interesting contrast for me to discover when researching this, looking at how many years really have gone into, into I guess, thoughts gone into it, but I guess this... This is still so little that is there within the bill, but then also, I guess, within the change, the cultural changes are really not quite there yet where we need them at all. Um, and yes, of course, it's very broad goal of, you know, health and sustainable and affordable. Um, 
yeah, and those are great, but how can we actually reach them and and what can be put in place to actually guide, give more yeah. of a guide map of how to get in that direction? I think that will be yeah. those will be important next steps, I think. And 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 the contrast to, for instance, what I talked about earlier in the conversation with the Danish minister laying out very, very tangibly what does healthy, sustainable, affordable mean? Well, it means more plant production. It means more innovation so that plant products are can compete with meat-based products. And it means make sure that meat is as environmentally efficient as possible. That is a good food nation for Denmark. It's tangible. It's something that all the stakeholders can see. This is what's demanded of us. They can use that as a vehicle for, okay, I can see where my future markets will be at. The farmers can start looking into old varieties of beans because we know this is direction of travel. If you just say it needs to be healthy, sustainable and affordable, then everyone can say, well, we're doing it as, as best we can already. So let's just keep doing what we're doing. Mm, yeah. Okay. For one final question, I wanted to ask, you know, what can what can we do as people listening, as listeners, as I guess engaged citizens in sort of contributing towards that? Um, food system change and, and I guess how can we like engage people in conversations about um, about food uh, maybe particularly also about like meat consumption and problem of ag animal agriculture but I guess in a constructive way that encourages change yeah you're right these discussions can sometimes be very polarizing mm -hmm. so I think the best thing we can all do is to have some of these discussions make sure to talk with friends and family about these issues because it's very, very complicated, but do it in a non-judgmental way. Everyone can find their own place. I like then soaking chickpeas and take, spending a whole lot of time in the kitchen. Others opt for kind of like the, the veggie version of the chicken nuggets and, and that's fine. We can all do a little bit, each one of us. I think so having a, the good conversation, then also if you are in a position of power, try to be honest about the, the medium to long-term outlook for food system. So have these longer-term conversation with farmers, with food businesses. What do you think really that the product you have right now will be able to compete when lab-grown meats and plant-based alternatives 10 years from now will be at par with minced beef? Well, won't everyone then opt for the plant-based version? How can you make sure that you carve out a room for, for your product? And if you don't have a product in the future market, what would you then be able to do? So I'm trying to host these kind of conversations where we try to be honest about the outlook of the food system, because there is this kind of reinforcing, let's just keep doing what we're doing and that's all fine. No, we need to have these honest conversations. And then luckily it does matter what you eat. We can, as I've told about, yeah. much of the change that is kind of like exploding in the food system, the, the discussions about transforming the food system comes from consumer demand. Consumer demand trickling into retailer innovations that then puts the pressure on farmers and policymakers to change. So sh be part of that change and show that change is is good and and can be fun and and eat as as, as best you can buy the good new product from a local uh, uh, kombucha distiller if you have the chance uh, 
spend your spend your money on on the world you want to see in the future and then also help communicate that to our decision makers so that policymakers don't just think that all consumers are just meat loving people who don't want change no we are actually ready we're way more ready for change than you think we are so communicate your change to the retailers and the policymakers and show we are ready go and help it make easier for me to be the consumer I want to be. Mm. We can all do a lot more to look at sort of where we get food from, especially to support um, local produce and to look around as well. And I guess engage in maybe even in conversations with if, I mean, here in, in, in Scotland, it's actually not that difficult to try and go and find like, where's food produced? Like where, what's the farmer trying to produce it? Like the farms are all around. So it's actually, you can go mm. and have a conversation with farmers yeah. around that. And I think, that's something we don't do. We don't really yeah. explore where does our food actually come from, um, which is interesting because I think that's changed a lot in our society yeah. um, in terms of if, that. Previously, there was such a stronger connection to where our food comes from, and now we we basically don't have. We basically don't know. I think if if I should kind of like suggest one little life hack that just forces you to do a little bit more of this, it would just be order a box scheme of vegetables from your local farmer because it also forces you to change the way you eat. It forces you to figure out, okay, how do I use these products that are grown just nearby me? It's always sustainable and healthy, but it might not be something you're accustomed to. But then if you have this box, it's dirt cheap and you will then have to cook it for the next week. So it forces you to do the right thing while also learning a bunch of new stuff about kind of like whatever's grown in your region. That's been a cool way to learn the Scottish food culture just through having, oh, what is this vegetable? Let's see how we can use it uh, yeah. as part of, of our everyday life. Yeah, that is exciting. And I think it's also something nice to sort of have like fresh produce that you know doesn't come from far and you know is grown in the land of the area surrounding you. And yeah. um, so I guess that's, it's, it's a fun way to, to explore that and to support farmers as well and to support local in the region. Um, but yeah, I know we could talk on a lot more, but um, let's let's keep it at this today. And um, thank you so much for for the insights and um, yeah, for sharing some of your thoughts um, and yeah, your support in, in this process. I really look forward to seeing what will what future developments will happen in the Scottish food system and and how we can create some of these changes that we need to see. Um, so yeah, thank you very much and um, thank you to our listeners for listening <laughs> and hope you have a good rest of your day.